Now, if you would, open up to John's Gospel, chapter 15, 16, I'm sorry, chapter 16. We are going to actually come to the end of the chapter this morning, beloved. Before we enter into the Holy of Holies, as it's known as, John chapter 17 and the real Lord's Prayer. Amen. We're going to pick up in verse 25, we'll read to the end of the chapter, and then we will look at this in depth together this morning. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the last night before his death, with his 11 faithful disciples, Judas having been ordered out by the Lord himself, earlier this very evening, Jesus continues with these words, verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you're speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you in order that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Our Father, we ask now by your grace in the illuminating light of your Holy Spirit to minister to the unspoken needs, the unspoken hurts and trials and tribulations that are going on within the hearts and the lives of your very people this morning, that you would minister to them through the exposition of your word. For souls that are here this morning who do not know you, who are deceived into a false belief system, may you today, but by your grace, cause these dear people to be born again for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name, amen. We are now in the epilogue of the Lord's discourse. The promises this morning, friends, are for those that are his own. This upper room discourse is directed to those who are his own. And if you are in Christ, you are his own. And if you are his own, these truths apply to you today. The central theme of the upper room discourse has been preparation. That is the Lord's preparation of these 11 men for his departure. It will begin with his arrest, followed by his trial, his death, his glorious, powerful resurrection, and his ascension. He's leaving the apostles. And he's preparing them for a hostile world that will hate him. In chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. All animosity against those who proclaim and herald the true gospel of Jesus Christ All hatred that is directed at those who are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately directed at Christ himself. So rejoice, therefore, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, beloved. The central theme, preparation. The sentiment of the upper room this evening is one of sorrow and trepidation. These men are gripped with fear. They're overcome with sorrow. The remedy for the sorrow in this fear is this. The peace and the joy of Jesus Christ. 
The peace and the joy of Jesus Christ. Earlier this very night in chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said to these men, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Look at chapter 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy, now did you get that? My joy, my peace that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. In chapter 16, verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but that sorrow will be turned to joy. Verse 22, chapter 16, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. Verse 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Jesus concludes this discourse in verse 33 with these words. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Now, because we live in an addict-prone society, Our society produces more addicts than any other in history. Now, the following statements are lecture notes from a Dr. Patrick Carnes. He's the clinical director of the Meadows, which is a private multiple addiction disorder treatment and recovery facility in Wickenburg, Arizona. So why is it that our society produces addicts more than any other in history? Number one our culture has a quick-fix, convenience-oriented mentality. Our society stresses easy solutions to problems. Carnes goes on to say that our era suffers from values confusion. We have confused morals. This is the first generation that hasn't passed its values on to its young. And people don't have the kind of anchors that they used to have. Our culture is heavily oriented towards entertainment. Our culture suffers from disputed family life. Children grow up in fragmented homes and they experience internal abandonment. There's an enormous loss of community in our culture. The average person moves about every three years. The sustained support of extended family members are, going, are ongoing in that they close the friendships that we desperately need. Ours is a high-stress, high-anxiety culture. Ours is a very abusive society. There's a denial of limitations today. We don't think of ourselves as finite as we truly are, and therefore, we do not deal with tribulation or death very well at all. And again, these are notes from Dr. Karn's lecture. Finally, the number of addicts tends to multiply. If you took all the various kinds of addictions, the total figure would be about 131 million. Addicts produce addicts, so there is a multiplying effect here. Now, may I suggest to you this morning that this addict-prone culture are in a mad pursuit for peace, which will leave them desperately lacking. Joy and peace and their intrinsic worth is something that all people aspire to gain. Everybody wants joy and everybody wants peace. However, true joy and peace is not possible for anyone who does not have communion with Almighty God in Christ alone. It's not possible. In other words, you must have a true living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, given that joy and peace outside of Him is contingent upon upbeat circumstances and events. Stormy trials will come. Circumstances in our life will change. Possessions, people, and health are all things that come and go. 
No amount of therapy. There's no amount of happy thoughts, medications, or meditations on some religious guru which will provide true joy and peace. There's no true peace outside a true communion with God through Jesus Christ, his only son. The title of our message, Peace Through Communion with God in Christ. Now, if you would, look at your bulletin outline. In the applicable outline for us this morning reveals three components of true communion with God. Now, peace through communion with God in Christ is revealed by the fact that those who have true communion with God are uniquely loved by God, number one. They are uniquely loved by God. Secondly, they have a proper belief in Christ. And then finally, those who have a true communion with God in Christ have an ever-growing faith in Christ. So we'll look at these one at a time, and we'll begin here. Number one, we, those who are in Christ, these 11 this night are uniquely loved by God. We see this in verses 25 to 27a. Let's begin here, verse 25. These things, Jesus said, I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Now, these things that Jesus is referring to are the things that he taught in the upper room this very night, which began back in chapter 13, specifically in verse 31, once Judas was ordered out. Now, the figurative language he used this night, prior to Judas leaving, he said this, After he washed their feet, he says, you're all clean, but not all of you. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. In my father's house, chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus said, are many mansions. In verse 20, chapter 14, he spoke about the divine trinity indwelling them. In John 15, Jesus referred to himself as the vine. Believers, these disciples, you, me, are the branches, and the Father is the vine dresser. In chapter 16, verse 21, he speaks about maternal sorrow that will be turned to joy. Just like that mother who grieves and has pain by this child, that same child that caused the pain will also produce great joy. We learned last week that God does not remove the sorrow and replace sorrow with joy, but he takes sorrow in our lives and he transforms it into joy. It's the redeeming work of our Savior in and through our lives. Now, Jesus also also spoke figuratively throughout his ministry. When he commenced his public ministry, he came into Jerusalem at the time of Passover. He walked into the temple and he overturned the money changers' tables. He made a cord of whips and he chased out not only the animals, but the men who were selling those animals for sacrifices. He spoke about being born again. When Jesus turned over the tables, he said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now scripture tells us that they didn't get that until after the resurrection. He referred to himself as the light of the world, the living water, and that from true believers, from out of them would flow streams of living water. He's the good shepherd. He's the door to the sheepfold. They didn't get all that. They didn't understand this. We see that in John 10. He also referred to himself as being one who precedes Abraham. Before Abraham was, I what? Am. I am the resurrection and the life. But soon now, Jesus would speak to them fully and openly, but he can't speak plainly about the Father at this point due to their incapacity to hear. They're not able to understand at this point. It would take the coming in the illuminating work of God the Holy Spirit to not only be with them, but be in them and enable them to remember all things that he taught them, to teach them the truths, which would become the epistles, and those things which are to come, which would be prophecy. Back in verse 12 of chapter 16, Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you that which is to come. Not until Jesus Christ gives his life as a ransom for many, beloved, along with the subsequent coming of the Holy Spirit, which will take up residency within these men, will the cross be fully understood. There was also the 40 days after his resurrection preceding the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke with and taught his disciples. We don't know much about what he taught them at that time. We're very limited in our understanding. We have only what scripture tells us. I can only imagine what he taught them at that time though. With regard to the Father, the work of the cross. Jesus is saying here in verse 25, I'm leaving you, but my teaching, it will continue. It will continue. And he is to this very moment, is he not, beloved, teaching the dear saints? He's teaching us today because we've been justified, declared free from all blame. We've been sanctified, set apart in the work that he began in us. He's faithful to complete that work. And we are learning as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit teaches God's people the very things of Christ. You want to know if you're in a spirit-led church or not, as we said a number of weeks ago, you want to know if you're in a spirit-led church? They don't run around talking about the Holy Spirit. If you're in a spirit-led church, you're learning about Christ because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Christ, exalt his gospel. And to do that, you've got to be in the word of God. You have to be expounding this truth, the truth of Jesus. Now, earlier this night, Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Now, Philip replied to that statement, if you recall, in John 14, 8, he said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. But you see, at this point, Philip's mind was fixed in the theology of glory. Philip wanted what every mystic and guru desires in their religious ignorance. And what they desire is to go directly to the Father without the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. So Jesus responded by directing Philip to himself. In verse 9 of chapter 14, Jesus said to Philip, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? The very essence and the nature and the person and the glory of Jesus Christ points you to the Father, for I and my Father are one. And what Jesus said to Philip earlier this night is essentially what he goes on to say here in verse 26. Look at it. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. The time is coming for these 11 men to have uninterrupted access to the Father, just as they've had with the Son. His atoning work, Christ laying his life down on the cross, will provide direct access to the Father for these 11 men and every true believer thereafter. That's for us today. It is only, friends, it is only, and you tell your friends this, who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is the only way, and only in the name of Jesus Christ does anyone have access to the Father. So praying in Jesus' name is not some secret password or code. You just don't go asking a bunch of crazy questions to, you know, praying amiss, as James tells us, to spend on our earthly, worldly pleasures. Oh, and by the way, in Jesus' name. Yeah, there's the magic wand, in Jesus' name. <laughs> Prayer is not a wish. Prayer is not a magic formula. Many people say, oh, I've been praying and my wish came true. No, this is communion with God. And no one has communion with God unless they have an intimate, saving relationship through the Son, Jesus Christ. They might as well be talking to the ceiling. Every religious system, therefore, 
outside of true biblical Christianity, they don't know God, they don't have a relationship with him, regardless of what they think or feel. It's not a mystic method of inner meditation. That has its roots in paganism. In his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, refers to all that is true about him. And it begins with this. He is the only one, the one and only begotten son of God. He's the only way to be possibly made right with God. Because you'll soon see, if you're not in Christ, you are at enmity with God and he is at war with you. That's the gospel. So to pray in that name is to pray on the basis of his accomplished atonement, payment. He laid down his life. No man takes my life, Jesus said. I came and I lay it down freely. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. And that's exactly what he did. So they're standing with God, these 11 men. Our standing with God is entirely dependent upon the merit of Jesus Christ, the Son. The relationship that Jesus established with his disciples provided the way for direct access to the throne of grace. And if you're in Christ, you have direct, when you pray, you have direct access to the throne of God because of this mediator, the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus affirms this by saying, look, I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. In other words, you don't have to ask me to ask the Father for you because the Father is not indifferent towards those who are believers in me. He loves all who are truly in Christ, the only begotten Son. He will hear you as swiftly as he will hear his Son. Because when he sees you, he sees his Son. You are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. That's why he hears you. If you are caught up in any other religious system but this, your prayers go unheard. Is the alarm of the Lord short and that it cannot save? Is his ear heavy that he cannot hear? No, but your iniquities have caused him to turn his face from you so that he wills not to hear. Jesus, or God the Father, is not indifferent towards those who are in his Son. So it's not as though Jesus is up there battling on our part because God the Father is, wants to hold back from us. That's not the idea. He doesn't stand there to overcome the unwillingness of the Father to answer our prayers. So here, these men are promised direct access. This is acceptance with the Father. To be received by the Father. And it's solely on the basis of the finished work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only access. And after he's gone back to heaven, they shall pray in his name. That is, in the light of what he has done for them, based on his merits on their behalf. John Calvin said it most eloquently. Quote, We have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son. End quote. You see, friends, the father has a unique love, special affection for true Christians, and therefore grants them this access. Notice verse 27. For the father himself loves you. Because, what? You have loved me. The Father has special affection for you, beloved, these 11 men and you who are in Christ today, because you love me, Jesus said. Now, notice the word loves. The Father himself loves. Loves translates a form of the verb, the verb phileo. Phileo, which is a love of deep, caring affection. And this is a different from agape love or agapao love, which is a love of the will. This is an affectionate love. And phileo expresses a fatherly kind of love, as a father has for his children. Special affection. I love all kids, but I have a special affection for my own. I love your little chitlins, <laughs> little chicklets, but not like I love mine. 
So you could read this as this. The Father himself has affection for you because you love Jesus. See, when you have affection for someone, it's because you share common interests. You could uh, operate and work in, in the uh, um, trade business of woodwork here. As you see the beautiful woodwork in here, which was uh, erected by one of our men in this church. He designed it, and he made this. Now, this man, when he comes along someone in life who's a young man and who loves woodwork and wants to learn the art of finished carpentry, you know, our man will have special affection for such a man as this and want to pour into him because they share the same interests. The Father's affection for the apostles, the Father's affection for you is because we and the Father both love his Son. So the Father loves them. So therefore the Father loves you. This is the love of approbation. The love of approbation. This is a love of approval. This is a love of consent because we love his Son, Jesus. Now, what this does not mean, it's very important, what this does not mean is that we earn his love based on some merit on our, of our own for loving Jesus. That's, it does not mean that. We can only love him like this because God sovereignly chose to love his own in eternity past. He initiated this love relationship, friends. 1 John 4.19 We love him because he first... Loved us. How did God love us first? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 answers that question. Verse 4 Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intentions of, guess what? His will. That's sovereign grace before the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters. Sovereign grace. That's the love relationship that was established before you or I were ever thought of by our parents, before our parents were ever thought of by theirs. So in response to this eternal saving love for us, we come to understand because we've been granted grace to believe, we understand that this love was established in eternity past, and we therefore love him in return. And we prove that love by way of obedience, do we not? If you love me, said Jesus, you will keep my word. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, abide in my love. If you abide in my love, your joy will be made full. Abide in me and I in you in order that your joy may be full. For without me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. You see, he loved us first in eternity past with that unconditional agape love. Through the illuminating truth of his gospel, we therefore love him in return. And on top of that, he reveals this phileo, love of affection, you see. Now let me see if I can illustrate this for you. My wife and I have two children. One going on 17, one going on 21. I have loved those children unconditionally from the time that we knew that they were conceived. The time that they were in my wife's womb, we loved those children. And I love them unconditionally. When they were born and they came into this world, it is my job, it is our responsibility to raise them, to love them, to nurture them, to provide for them, to educate them, to train them to become God-honoring adults. That's the goal. Our goal in raising children is to make adults that fear God. These children of mine, in response to my love for them, if they want to love me in return, they are going to honor me and they're going to respect me, and they're going to obey me. And as they respect me and honor me and obey me, although I love them with an unconditional love, I will pour upon them greater affection, love of approbation, love of, of approval, love of consent, and I may very well reward them for that obedience, you see. So those that have true communion with God through Jesus Christ are recipients of God's love of Delight. It's a unique love, brothers and sisters. It's a special affection. And what we see here is the reciprocating love of God for his own. 
those that are in his son. He initiates it in eternity past. He maintains it, and he returns more love in response to those who show that affection for his son. You see that connection? It's beautiful. This is simple, but deeply profound. Because you see, this is the reason for this loving affection. The reason is that they love the son, but how do they show that love? Point two, they rightly believe in the son. They rightly believe in the son. Those who have peace through communion with God in Christ are uniquely loved by God and have a proper belief in Jesus Christ, the son. Notice, verse 27b. And they have believed that I came forth from the Father. You see, their prayers will be heard due to the love that God has for them and all true believers because they have right faith, a correct faith. And that faith is with regard to this, friends, the heavenly origin of Jesus Christ. The heavenly, glorious origin of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's true in one sense that God has a love for all people. Because all people are created in the image of God, and in his image he created them male and female. Therefore, God has a certain love for all mankind. Common grace, a common love. But it is also true that he has a special love for those who truly believe. This is a salvific love. This is a love that saves what the Bible teaches. That's what's being conveyed here. Now, there are many people who believe the facts about Jesus Christ. They, very many people give intellectual assent to the truth of Jesus Christ, but they deny him as God incarnate. They deny him as the only way to eternal life. And these people, regardless of what they claim, they don't have God. They don't know God according to God according to the God-man. Regardless of how spiritually they claim to be, they do not know God. This is the truth you must share with your family who doesn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. This is the truth you must share with those who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I believe also that all roads lead to God. You must declare this truth because this is the gospel. Any teaching that is not directed toward Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father and the sole source of eternal life is not of God, but it is of the devil himself. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says this, and it is not a wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. See, friends, they're on the broad road that leads to eternal destruction, Jesus said. Many people go in that way. They think they're on the road to heaven. It leads to the gates of hell. All religious systems in the world lead to hell. This way is very narrow. This way is very straight. The doorkeeper is Jesus Christ himself. Now, the Bible refers to people that are deceived as fools. Proverbs 14.8 says that the folly of fools is deceit. You see, deception blinds the eyes of all who take differing roads of religion in an attempt to work themselves into favor with God. True salvation is by grace alone. Can't be earned. It was paid for by Christ. That's the point. You can't meet his standard. His standard's holy perfection. It's impossible to meet the standard. That's bad news, is it not? Therefore, that's where the gospel comes in. There's no good news without bad, amen? That's the gospel. Because you see, 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. The only way. The only hope. So you see, to have true peace is to have true communion with God, and the only way to have true peace and true communion with God is to be in Christ. You're affectionately loved by him because of that, and you have a proper belief in him because of that. So to view Christ as one of the ways to heaven will lead you to eternal damnation. 
to seek God apart from Jesus Christ alone is eternally devastating. And it is proof of not knowing God. Outside of Jesus Christ alone, there's no accurate knowledge of God. Outside of Jesus Christ alone, there's no accurate knowledge of salvation. Outside of knowledge of Jesus Christ alone, there is no hope. No hope. And outside of Jesus Christ, the Bible, my friends, remains a closed book. That is why they cannot understand. That is why you at one point were not able to understand. That is why I at one point was not able to understand. Because... 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14 says the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they are foolishness to him. It takes God to open the eyes and cause you and enable you to believe. So there's no true understanding without the illuminating light of God in the heart of sinful men. It takes the Holy Spirit to come and breathe life into us. It enables us to see and understand by faith the redemptive person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they have no communication with God regardless of how much they chant. The basis of saving faith is believing in the deity of Jesus Christ. The basis of true saving faith is believing that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He came out of heaven and he stepped down onto this earth and became a man, not the other way around. He's not a man that we elevated to be God. He's God who lowered himself. He condescended to become a man. This is the key to everything. This is the one area of doctrine that so many have rejected. Christian liberalism denies the deity of Jesus Christ. The cults deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, many others. The metaphysical spiritualists all deny Christ as God. He, they deny him as being the only way, which is the basis for true saving faith says Jesus. That's what you want to say, by the way, when you're saying, you said, Jesus said it, I didn't say it. Thus saith the Lord. Thus, say, thus says the Lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. He said it. Just passing it on. Verse 28. This is so beautiful. You don't want to miss this. I came forth from the Father, have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Beloved, all of the Christian faith, all of it, is built upon the historical facts of that one verse. This is the crux of salvation. This is the result of joy. This is the result of peace. This is the result of faith, hope, and love. This is it. It's all wrapped up right here. This is the answer. This is what answers your prayers. Look at it. If you eliminate any one of these four points in verse 28, there is no soul-saving gospel. And then you'll make up your own. Number one, Jesus said, I came forth from the Father. What does this declare? His preexistence. His perfect deity. He departed from glory in order to dwell on a sin-cursed earth for 33 years, friends. Pre-existent Christ. Secondly, and have come into the world. What is this but a declaration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? God the Son coming to earth as a man, ministering to fallen sinful mankind. Had he not come, friends, we'd have no hope. Had he not come, we'd not be here. Had he come and not died, we would not be here. Had he come and not died and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, we'd not be here. We'd be the fools to be most pitied, would we not? He's the way. Notice, point three, and I'm going to leave the world. And I'm leaving the world. By way of what? By way of his preordained death. It was not some surprise. No man takes my life again. I came to lay it down. Written in the pages of Holy Writ, Old Testament. And he would depart with resurrection power. Fourth point that you must believe is going back to the Father. He would return. It simply says he's going to return from where he came. To the very side of the Father in glory. That's his ascension. 
pre-existent, incarnation, death and resurrection, ascension. All of which, by the way, are the voluntary, preordained actions of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's love. That's grace. That's mercy. And the reason that there's love, grace, and mercy is because God's wrath was unleashed upon him. And all those who reject him, that wrath will be upon them forever and ever and ever and ever. That's hell. That's the gospel. Now, if you don't believe that, my friends, that Jesus is the great I am, that he's the exclusive way to heaven, Jesus provides some shocking words for you, and I pray that God is here in spirit to open your hearts this morning. Jesus said this to the religious Pharisees of his day in John 8, verse 24, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for unless you believe that I am. Him is italicized. It's not in the original. For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. See, friends, you must be in a right standing relationship with Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You must have a right, correct Christology. You must properly, biblically believe in who Jesus Christ is as who he's declared himself to be. That's the only way to have peace with God. That's the only way to have true communion with God, you see. Thirdly, in order to have peace and true communion with God in Christ, you will also have an ever-growing faith in Christ. An ever-growing faith in Christ. Verses 29 to 33. Now notice, his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Now, they were quite pleased with themselves at this point that they understood something of God's love, right? Put, now, hey, I try constantly to put myself in the place of the disciples. They did much better than I possibly would have. Oh, but by God's grace, amen. You don't knock Peter. I'm nothing but a Peter, right? Praise God for his grace. Now, they understand something at this point of God's love. They understand this promise of sorrow that will be turned to joy, the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. So they think. Okay, so they think. But at this point, what they didn't realize is that their knowledge was shallow confidence at this point. Very shallow. They simply didn't know what they didn't know at this point. They blindly think that they have it. How many times have we been in places, in positions in life that we simply don't know what we don't know? Right? When we purchased this building and we purchased this property, when we got into this thing three years ago, I learned in the process that I don't know what I don't know. Dealing with the city, getting all these permits, and you got all these people coming and hounding, and, and just they don't understand. And it's like, look, I'm just learning this myself. Have some mercy. I don't know what I don't know, but I'm learning quickly. Amen? I know many men that have come out of seminaries. I know many men in seminary right now. We have six that we sent out of this place. Glory to God. Now, not, these men don't say that, but I know a couple men that have said this. And I go to these conferences, and, and I meet guys, and they go, hey, man, I just need a pulpit. Just got to get me a pulpit. I just need me a church. Right? They don't know what they don't know at this point. This is the most important part of the ministry, the pulpit ministry, no doubt about it. But that's not all the ministry. They learn after a few years that they didn't know what they don't know. D.A. Carson said it like this, quote, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists, end quote. Isn't that rich? I wish I could just think an eighth of how Carson can think. 
Let me read it again. No misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. See, they're nodding their heads at this point. By George, Lord Jesus, I think we've got it. See, they lead on as though they understand. We often do this, don't we? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. We're given certain facts and formulas that we don't really comprehend, but we'll nod along. Oh, yeah, I get it. You know, there's dear folks who can sit in church service and listen to a preacher preach with their eyes closed, nodding along. That's a gift. That's a gift. I've never asked them afterwards if they got what was said. But however, all kidding aside, one thing's for certain here. Although they don't fully understand all that Jesus is saying here at this point, one thing that they do know is that he knows all things. Their confidence is in him. They're going to stumble, they're going to bumble, and they're going to fall, and they're going to run. But their confidence is in him. In this too, my friends, is where we must drop anchor, our anchor of trust and confidence. It's not in your faith. It's not in your doctrine. It's in Christ the substance of our faith, and the author of our doctrine. That's where we must drop anchor. You see, Jesus is the one that's holding them. Jesus is the one that will hold them to the end, you see. You will persevere, Christian, to the end because he holds you. If it's up to you to hold him, you're helpless. If you can lose your salvation, that means you can do something to earn it. If salvation is all of God in Christ and he comes to the sinner, then he holds you to the end and you will persevere to the end, beloved. That's what happened with these 11. Didn't happen to Judas because he was never a true disciple. He didn't lose salvation. He never had it. That's the difference. So they're hours away from fleeing. So the Lord now asks a bigger question. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the father's with me. Jesus said, do you now at this very moment believe? Do you really know my beloved 11 men, what you're in for? Turn backwards to the book of Zechariah, second to the last book in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus, what we just read, he speaks prophetically here of an hour that is coming, of an hour that is here for which you, my dear 11 beloved apostles, will be tried with fire. Now, I want you to follow along here and look at the glorious truth in this passage. Verse 7, Zechariah 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Who's speaking? God himself through the prophet. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. God the Father speaking of his shepherd. The shepherd is his associate. In other words, his co-equal. His co-equal. And it's God here speaking of his co-equal. His shepherd, he's speaking of his son. What does this refer to? But the deity of Jesus Christ. Equal to the Father. Notice also God's sovereign hand here. For it is actually he who strikes his own chosen shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. The sheep are going to scatter. These little ones will go on and they themselves will also suffer suffer persecution for his name. So who's in control here? Who will be in control here when this prophecy is fulfilled? Okay, is it it the, the, the Judaistic religious system of the day? Are they in control? No. Is it Rome? Are they in control? No. 
Who killed Jesus then? Religious Jews? Kinda. The Roman authorities? Kinda. You? Kinda. Me? Kinda. Above all, friends, it was God the Father who crushed the Son. He killed the Son to provide a way for you. That's the gospel. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. The moment is approaching. The hour has come. In plain language, he says, your hour has come to be tried. You'll depart. You see, what the 11 did not estimate at this point was the weakness of their own flesh. They had no idea what they were capable of under such great pressure. They would be under great pressure. They would have to face the fear of man. They would have the fear of man that they would have to face, rather. The weakness of the flesh, they would not understand. And you know what else they would understand this night? The power of the devil. Let alone the shallowness of their own faith. You see, this is kind of like going in the military. I remember going into the military. I remember staying up late when I was a youngster. And at about midnight or 1 o'clock, TV shut off. It was all fuzz. And at the end of the day, broadcasting day, they would have the national anthem. And they would have this, 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 this film of this ship going up and down like 30-foot swells in the ocean, you know. And I want to do that, I said. So I had all these grandiose ideas of what it was like to be in the military. I'd watch World War II movies and see John Wayne and all these great actresses. Man, I want to do that. So I go to boot camp. I'm like, what is this? I finally get the uniform. I go, okay, well, now I'm in the service. Active service. You see, this is kind of what it's like. You're a recruit, you know a little bit. It's one thing to enter and pass through basic training. It's another thing to get your uniform and serve an active duty. But I'll tell you something. It is an entirely different situation to stand in the heat of battle with incoming missiles and bullets. That's what they faced. You see, spiritual strength begins with humility and utter dependence on the substance of our faith. Paul said, when I am weak, then what? Then I'm strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. And may we never forget these words. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. None of you who are married, including myself, are beyond committing adultery against our spouses, but by the grace of God. And any other sin that you can think of. You all, Jesus said, will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because the Father's with me. Now, although Jesus would be deserted by his flock, the Father wouldn't desert him. Jesus said back in chapter 8, verse 29 of John's Gospel, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. You see, very important, in his divinity... The Father would be with him just as he had been for all eternity. They've been one from eternity past right into eternity future. But although for a few hours, as the sin-bearing Savior, he would hang there as the atoning sacrifice for the many that he came to save. In the reality that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, caused Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you see, in that moment, the Lord was pleased to crush him. God the Father was pleased to crush the Son because he was rendering himself a guilt offering. Thus he himself bore the sin of many, says the scripture, and interceded for the transgressors so that by bearing their iniquities, he would justify many, Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Justify many. So without the Father's eternal purpose in mind, or with the eternal purpose of the Father in mind, Jesus can therefore say, 
I am not alone. I am not alone. Now, although the sheep would scatter, they would go to hide, they'd be terrified, Jesus now ends the farewell discourse on a triumphant note. Notice, he's looking beyond their failure now. You see who holds us in the faith? He's looking beyond their failure. Securing their ever-growing faith in those who are truly in Christ, those who have true communion with God in Christ, will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 33. These things I've spoken to you that in me, get that? In me, you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. You see, the world means trial and tribulation for these men. And the remedy for this trial and tribulation is the peace that we as believers have in Christ through his redeeming work. Hang with me for a few more minutes. This peace that Jesus is referring to is the peace of expiation. Write that down. The peace of expiation. Expiation is a theological term that means to remove sins and to remove transgressions. It means a cancellation of our debt. Expiation. Now you've heard the term propitiation. Propitiation means what? Satisfaction. Appeasement. And 1 John 2, 2 says, And he himself, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. He, the Son, sacrificed, or satisfied rather, the very wrath of the Father. God is love, though. Yes, he is. He's also a God of wrath. That wrath had to be appeased in order for the sin to be expiated, removed. So Christ's death expiated, i.e. removed our sins, removed our debt, removed our offenses, whereas at the same time it propitiated, in other words, satisfied God's wrath. Theologians confuse expiation and propitiation. I don't know how they do it but they do. There is not an expiation of God's wrath. You don't remove God's wrath. But rather, expiation removes our sin. It removes our debt. Whereas propitiation satisfies God's wrath. Expiation can't satisfy his wrath. Jesus the sacrifice satisfied his wrath, which removes the sin. So this peace, therefore, friends, this peace comes from knowing that our sins have been paid for, our sins have been expiated. Do you have that peace today? That's a glorious peace to have. And those in Christ have peace. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, all that I've been teaching you about the sorrow that would be turned to joy, that in me you may have peace. You can't have peace in any other religious system. It's not possible. The Bible talks about two kinds of peace. Peace with God and the peace of God. You can never have the peace of God unless you have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Justification means to be declared free from all blame. Having been justified by faith. Faith in who? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Well, what did we have before that? Enmity. Hostility. War. Because of our nature. Only those in Christ have peace with God. All other people are at enmity with him, just as we once were, my friends. If you're in Christ, you were at one time at war with God. I was at one time at war with God. Ephesians 2.3 says this, We were, past tense, those who are in Christ, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Even as the rest. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself, Christ, is our peace. He's our peace, who made both, both, context Jew and Gentile, who made both Jew and Gentile into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments. 
If you're not in Christ, you have to uphold the law perfectly. You have to be perfectly holy to get to heaven. That's how you get in. Guess what? It's impossible. You've already failed. The moment you were conceived, for in sin my mother conceived me, said King David. In his flesh, the enmity which the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it, having put to death that enmity. Enmity was put to death in Christ for you if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, in Christ alone, you stand in enmity. He's at war with you, friends. Pray that you're here today if you don't know him. That he's brought you here to open your heart to this glorious truth. The gospel. The gospel. That's peace with, peace with God. Secondly, there's those that are in Christ have peace, the peace of God. Because you have peace with God, you therefore have the peace of God. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for what, friends? Nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If we don't have thankful hearts, you won't have peace in your heart. The peace of God. You'll be full of anxiety. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and then the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in who? Christ Jesus. Only in Christ Jesus. So not only do we have peace with God on the basis of Christ's finished work which removed enmity through his blood. In addition to that, we also obtain this peace of God which comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Only believers can have the Holy Spirit, true believers. Because just as he promised these men, the same holds true for us today, beloved. Look, in the world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. You see, peace and trouble do not cancel out one another. Many Preachers on TV teach that, right? Well, if you're sick, you just don't have enough faith. Send me your money, and I'll put a green hanky over your money, and I'll pray blessing upon your financial situation. You just don't have enough faith. That is lunacy. This promise does not mean that the peace of Jesus enables us to escape the ills of life. No way. In this world, you will suffer. Faith in Jesus Christ does not automatically dissolve all the problems that we're going to face in life. So Jesus is not saying at all that you will be without trouble or you will be without tribulation. No way. But nevertheless, beloved, in the midst of it all, he provides a calm. He provides a sense of security, that peace of God, because we have eternal peace with God. You see that glorious connection? This beautiful truth. So this blessed assurance comes from the expiation of our sins for which Jesus Christ bore the wrath of the Father for. For you. That's grace. And because of Christ, we have a heavenly Father who, because we're in Christ, bends his ear when we pray to hear you. Because you have access to the throne of grace, he bends his ear. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, based on his merit, his finished work. So in the midst of it all, loved ones, keeping in mind who Jesus was originally speaking to this night. He was speaking to 11 men who would go on, 10 of which would die brutal deaths in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the tribulation that he's talking about here. What's your tribulation? Brutal deaths. So be of good cheer, beloved. Well, inside you might say, why? You have no idea what I'm going through. No, I don't, but he does. He does. And because he's overcome the world and the sin and death, he perseveres, or enables you rather to persevere because he preserves you to the end. And he loves you with a unique love and has granted you proper, correct belief in his son. And you will thereby grow in his grace and in his knowledge to the very end. That's the guarantee. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. 
But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That love. I close with the words of Thomas Brooks, Puritan pastor, under the title, I am his. Quote, I am his by purchase, and I am his by conquest. I am his by donation, and I am his by election. I am his by covenant, and I am his by marriage. I am wholly his. I am peculiarly his. I am universally his. I am eternally his. Once I was a slave, but now I am a son. Once I was dead, but now I am alive. Once I was darkness, but now I am light in the Lord Once I was a child of wrath, an heir of hell, but now I am an heir of heaven. Once I was Satan's bondservant, but now I am God's free man. Once I was under the spirit of bondage, but now I am under the spirit of adoption that seals up to me the remission of my sins, the justification of my person, and the salvation of my soul. End quote. That, my friends, is what peace is. Peace with God produces the peace of God. And when you have peace with God and you know it, you have the peace of God. And that produces joy. Ever abounding joy, abundant joy in the midst of tribulation. Because we are in Christ and have the love of the Father forever upon us. Friends, here it is. His victory is ours. Ours in Christ. So having peace with God provides for us that peace of God, which in turn, again, produces joy. Whose joy? His. His joy. In us and through us. And it's in the midst of tribulation. It's in the midst of trial. It is in the midst of trouble. While we live in this very temporal world. Amen? And amen. Our glorious Father, again we thank you for our time together. We thank you that we are part of what makes up the bride of Christ. Because of his finished work, as our one and only mediator, you have granted us access to the throne of grace. And may your people here this morning meditate on these glorious truths to know that by being in you and being of you provides for us such an access that is unknown to the world. May your church be edified this morning. And for any souls in here this morning who came in unredeemed, who are lost, who are deceived, by your grace, in the illuminating light of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go to work to take the truths of Scripture, the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, and plant them in their hearts, cause them to be born again, lift the veil of blindness, bring them out of their deceit, and enable them to embrace you. May they turn from their sin. May they turn from themselves to see their desperate need for the Savior and embrace Him by grace for your glory and their good, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.